0: set me free multiple times there. Free from what? You don't know the answer to that. That is a problem. Christ didn't just die to save us from our sins. He did die to set us free. Now, that's more what we'll cover next week than this week. But it hit me there that we often skip over that part. Now... Two starts, it seems, to about 80% of the sentences you hear in conversations anymore are, I think, or I feel like, and then it fills in the blank. These aren't very convictional. Imagine listening to an Old Testament prophet who was called to stand up and convict Israel of their sins and call them to repentance. And as he did, and he mounted those steps, and he cried out to the crowd, he said, I feel like God would want me to tell you something today, but wouldn't have much power. Or imagine reading the New Testament and flipping through and seeing phrase after phrase start that way, maybe the beginning of an epistle. Mm -hmm. Greetings from the Apostle Paul. I really feel like God would want me to tell you this, because I think, in the God that I think I know, that he might not want you to do this. It would be very troubling. It certainly wouldn't point to anything other than just the opinions of man. It would have no authority whatsoever. It wouldn't be worth listening to. We shouldn't want to listen to it. We should think that person a complete fool. In the same vein, maybe, as Proverbs 18.2 which says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. You see, an unregenerate fool will not search God's word for truth, will not search to see how it applies to his or her life, will not seek answers there. The proverb says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinions. And those opinions are opinions we need not listen to. And that, unfortunately, captures so much of what has gone wrong in the church today and in the lives of those who pursue things that typically start with, I feel like, as opposed to, God says. What does God say? It's unfortunate, but we often hear professing believers start to describe God or sin or their faith by saying, I feel like God would... And generally, they'll follow that would be okay with these sins. But we have to remember that the Christian faith is not based on what we think. It's not based on what we feel like. The Christian faith is based on historical, real, objective truth. The knowledge that God exists and is all-powerful is based on God's general revelation in creation. We're told that in Romans 1 or Psalm 19.2, right? The heavens above declare God's glory. But the Christian faith is based on more than that. It is based on God's special revelation, which is given to us in his perfect written word. And you can only know God in a saving way based on your acceptance of and your belief in and your adherence to what is revealed on every page of Scripture. We don't just think, we don't just feel like we can look to what God has said and we can know the theologian John Stott noted that knowledge is indispensable to Christian life and service if we do not use the mind that God has given us we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality and we cut ourselves off from many of the riches of God's grace Without knowledge, we see this all the time, you will just be blown about by the winds of culture, deciding for your own what is true. But we know truth, and you must know truth. Every God-breathed word of the Bible is truth. John seventeen seventeen tells us that, and it is the standard we have given to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So as we return to 1 John this morning, in our second to last sermon in this book, my mom did remind me, by the way, when I told her that, that I said last week that this week would be our last sermon in 1 John. So, sorry, I repent. Forgive me, please. There's a lot here. There's a lot we need to know. As John begins to conclude his letter... We do remember that indeed, it was the knowledge of truth in the face of error, in the face of those who had departed the church but continued to claim to be Christian in some way, shape or form, that inspired him to write this letter because he wants us to know. And we see that most powerfully in chapter 5, verse 13, where we read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, to you fellow Christians, that you may know that you have eternal life. That is the most important knowledge anyone can possess, because it is that knowledge that determines your eternal destination, one of two places, either paradise or perdition, either heaven or hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn again to your word this morning. We are so thankful that you have given it to us so that we might know, so that we can know you, so we can know your son, so that we can know whether we are children of God or children of wrath. Father, please use it to convict our hearts this morning, drawing us ever nearer to your Son, bringing us to repentance and calling lost to faith. We trust, Lord, in your promise that your word never returns void, but always achieves the purpose for which you sent it out. Open our hearts and minds this morning and let your Spirit work within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be in 1 John, right? 1 John, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. For those who read ahead, you must have gotten excited and known this was going to be about the fun topics of sin and things like that, so it will be. Because John concludes with a final three reminders of what all believers know. Every believer knows these things. And he does that three times. We're only going to focus on the first two. In 1 John 5, 18 and 19, let's read our text this morning, beginning in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, we live in a culture that has indoctrinated people to think of truth as completely relative. We have a very wise sage, a philosopher, and a prophet that many follow, Oprah Winfrey, that's a joke, although many do follow her. She famously tells people, speak your truth. And she writes frequently to live your truth. It's a portrait of pure delusion to think that there is no truth. But professing Christians sometimes do the very same thing. We don't always identify it in ourselves, but we will do it. We see professing Christians waffle around on the very things that the Holy Spirit has spoken to the church through the writings of the Apostle John. We have statements all throughout this letter telling us what marks a true Christian, telling us what saving faith must look like and what it does not look like. And he makes so clear that no matter what a person says with their mouth, no matter what label they put on themselves, that those who do not exhibit these characteristics are not saved. It's a truth that's not just found in 1 John. It is found all throughout the New Testament, but it is a truth that many deny either in complete ignorance, and it's willful ignorance because we have his word, or it's the unspoken desire to be our own God. People rarely tell you they want to be their own God, but they behave as if they want to be their own God, deciding what is true, what is not true, what they will accept and what God must accept. There's an example locally. One of you sent me this article this week. And it was about a dying church, a dead church, I would say, in a dying denomination, just north of us, suffering from the disease of theological liberalism and turning away from God's word. The world celebrated it. It was a positive story. They were celebrated because they had branded themselves to be a reconciling church, a reconciling church. Now... If we knew nothing else about our culture and the way that term is used, that's actually a phenomenal thing. Because the person and work of Jesus Christ, the reason that the Son was sent into the world was to reconcile sinful people like us to the thrice holy, the perfectly holy God who cannot have sin in his presence. But Christ came to reconcile us. And if that were the use of the word, then we are all... Reconcilers, because as Christians we take the gospel to the world and call people to repentance from their sin and faith in the one true living God so that they might be reconciled for all eternity. But this church had nothing to do with that. There was no gospel. Seeking the world's approval, they received it, but they received it by doubling down to deny God, to celebrate and approve and encourage sin. And further, all the cultural views and agendas that ultimately are an absolute assault to God and His Word. Now, I'm sure, I have no doubt, I've never met anybody up there, but I am sure that these are very nice people. And I say that with all sincerity. I am sure that they are extraordinarily nice, and they care about each other, and they care about their community. But they're nothing more than another social club. They just happen to meet in a church building. And there are lots of atheists and others who care deeply about their community. They made the press by adopting a statement of purpose. And I was going to read it, but for time's sake, I won't, because you literally can pick apart every single phrase with Bible verses and show how antithetical it is to the Word of God. They emphasize their commitment to pursue a false gospel, to pursue social justice. They follow a false Jesus who resembles nothing, of the Jesus revealed to us in scripture. They incorporate every single modern cultural fad you'd expect. Just one example, they wrote this in unsurprising fashion. We welcome and affirm, right? And I would tell you, always read carefully and critically. Affirm is to approve, is to encourage, is to declare what is right. We welcome and affirm people of every gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Now, I'm not going to dwell on that. That's nothing new. You'll find that in virtually every club that you go look at that is secular today. It's nothing new. It's just, this is not a church. It's just a club. It's a very inclusive club. It will coddle people and make them feel very comfortable and approved in this life as they move toward their eternal damnation in hell. And it's not a church. We call people to repentance and faith, and Christians need not be so confused. We should never be confused, even when a group like this claims to be a church. We can have certainty. We can know because God has told us. We can know the God that we worship. And anything else is just pure delusion. It's man-made myths. We can turn to Isaiah 45 as our starting point in verse 5. He says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. You can start there because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 2 Timothy 2.5, tells us that. You see, God has not left us guessing. We absolutely can know what pleases God and we can know what dishonors God. We can know whether we stand reconciled to God through our faith and our submission to Jesus Christ, or we can know that we remain children of wrath as we were born, even if we find some really nice people to tell us that we're all okay in this world. You see, God wants us to act according to what we know, and what we know comes out of his word. This is why John begins the final three affirmations in his letter virtually the same way. He says, we know, and again he says, we know, and the one we'll see next week, and we know. And the sound you should hear in your mind when you read we know is of three doors being slammed shut. Slamming the doors shut to any argument or debate or doubt. There's absolutely no hesitancy here whatsoever in what John is saying. He is making dogmatic, strong, Christian affirmations that are beyond dispute. These are things all Christians know. And they begin to summarize the doctrinal truths that John has laid out from the very beginning of his letter. These are truths that mark true followers of Jesus Christ, those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. They are the evidences of salvation, not what we do to gain salvation. We need to be clear on that. And you know them all well by now because we have repeated them over and over. They are the moral and the social and the doctrinal tests or qualities that we see in the life of a Christian. And that is obedience to God and His commands. Love for fellow Christians and how we sacrificially love God and love each other. And then finally, the right belief that Jesus is the Christ. And He is the Son of God who lived perfectly obedient to God the Father. In His written word, He died on the cross in substitution for the sins of anyone who will believe in Him. He offers eternal life. He rose On the third day, bodily from the grave, he ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand, and he will return one day to judge the living and the dead for all eternity. You must believe in the right Jesus. The first thing we know, says the Holy Spirit, writing through John in verse 18, is that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. On sinning, That is an absolute. That is exclusive. It is a truth about those who are forgiven and saved for all eternity. Because when people embrace the world or culture instead of God, they just join the devil's playground, which we'll see in the next verse. They essentially give in to this abominable lie that started in the Garden of Eden, right? You can be as gods. And that was Adam's sin that we are plagued with. We find people like that, and they are the subject of the great woes about judgment that are given to us. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good, and good evil. Those things are defined by God, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, because we know that Christians born of the Holy Spirit do not keep sinning, It's easy, or it should be easy, for us to clearly and undeniably say that a group that gathers to affirm sin, to approve lifestyles of sin, to approve lifestyles committed to rebellion against God, is nothing more than an unregenerate group of people gathering together in their rebellion. It's not a church, because a church is made up of followers of Christ who love Him and seek to obey Him. But what does this mean? That if you are a Christian, you no longer sin? Does that mean that we can reach perfectionism? We know that's not the case. This is ground we've walked over before. But back in 1 John 1.10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And His word is not in us. The knowledge statement, the thing that we know here is basically a restatement of 1 John 3.9. No one born of God, it starts. And that is one who is forgiven. That is one who is saved for all eternity by the precious blood of Jesus. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Right? You remember this? The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. No one makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. Now one of the things that John does is quite masterful in writing this letter. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, A man does not know what he is saying until he knows what he is not saying. And John, and really most of the New Testament writers, and Jesus does this himself in his teaching, uses both positive and negative statements to kind of close the door to remove the wiggle room that we often look for, where we can sort of cross our fingers and affirm the positive without ever really denying the negative. John closes the door on anyone who thinks they can continue to have a habit or a lifestyle of sin. A verse before in 1 John 3.8, he says, "'Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil.'" Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So we know. And the reason we know that no true Christian can live in perpetual rebellion and sin against God is because those who are redeemed, who are born again by the Holy Spirit, love God's law. We love His Word. Just look to our opening reading, and you could look to all of Psalm 119, really, is the Perfect place for this, but in verse 70, which we read earlier, I delight in your law. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. You can go to the beginning of the book of Psalms and look at the very first psalm, which sets the tone for the entire rest of that book. In verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is reflected in the life of a believer today, because the law is no longer external to us. That is a truth you should be excited about, to live in this day and age, to live after Christ has come. You see, before Christ, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place at Pentecost, people were given the law by Moses, and they were asked to follow it convicted of sin, but it was impossible to follow perfectly. But we have something better. We actually have something transformative. We are living proof of God's promise being fulfilled if we are regenerate by the work of the Holy Spirit. If we have received the grace of God and believe in Christ, it is captured by the prophets. They looked forward to the day in which we now live. Jeremiah 31, 33, the Lord declared the new covenant. He said, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. John is not saying anything new here. He is reaffirming the consistent message throughout Scripture. What he is saying is that a person who lives in perpetual, habitual sin and rebellion is a mark to deny that that person was ever saved by the grace of God to start with. The Holy Spirit does not and cannot indwell that person. They are both disobedient to the old covenant and they are not part of the new covenant. I'll pause there and say they can be. They need to repent and believe. But they cannot deny God and continue in a pattern of sin and claim some sort of false belief. The Bible is clear. God has spoken on these things. In Ezekiel 36, he points forward again. To this new covenant time that we live in. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Do you see that the work of Christ is not just to forgive us of our sins, but actually to make us anew? Uh, we talked about this with baptism last week, right? Death to the old man, alive as a new man in Christ, or new person in Christ. He cleanses us. And he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If, if God is at work in you, you will desire to obey his rules. You will have the God-given ability to do his will. You're a slave to the one you follow. Romans six seventeen and 18 demonstrates the wonderful work of God in us. It makes clear that we are no longer chasing the passions and instant gratification and all the world has to offer like we used to. We are moved towards obedience as followers of Jesus. We are repeatedly convicted of our sin and we come in repentance. He says in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set Free from sin. There's the reference in our song that we sang this morning. Having been set free from sin. Have become slaves of righteousness. Now will you do this perfectly? Is John even suggesting that? Definitely not. You will not do this perfectly. But the mark of a Christian. Is that when confronted with sin. The Christian is convicted inside. Remorseful. Driven to repentance. Driven to God to ask for forgiveness. And this is where we have this wonderful promise that we live with daily. First John 1 John nine, right? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the Bible is so clear on this. There is really no room for any honest disagreement. The only way to dispute what John has laid out, that a pattern of sin just evidences rank unbelief, in an unsaved person, the only way to argue against that is simply to deny God's word. And in that, you are denying that the all-powerful creator who created everything from nothing, including each one of us, that God does not have the power or the ability to communicate clearly with the creatures that he has created and desires to see come to repentance and faith. That would be the thought process of what the Bible refers to as a pride-filled fool. It makes no sense unless you deny the existence of God to start with. Now John continues in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now we know a believer can sin. We know a believer can fall into sin even for a time. We know this, and we saw it just a couple of weeks ago back in verse 16. Because we saw the importance of being a part of a faithful community of believers in the church. Because we're commanded to do something when we see this. Right, Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, he shall ask and God will give him life. So we know a believer can sin and we know what we must do. And we can be thankful and should be thankful that God has ordained a body, a church, to which we can be joined to help us in fulfilling this command. But here's the important part, and here's the important part you cannot miss from this text. A believer can never slip into a lifestyle or a pattern of sin. A believer can never slip into a lifestyle or a pattern of sin. That is uncharacteristic of true saving faith in Jesus Christ. It would point instead to what John has already told us in 1 John 2.19. Those people claimed something, but they were not of us. They were not saved. They left us so that we might know that they are not of us. This is a hard truth for people. Why? Why can we say that that is not possible? Well, we can say it because of this verse. Because the believer has this promise from God. He who was born of God. Protects him. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. This should give us the utmost assurance that He keeps, that He guards, He protects the children of God. Jesus is the one who holds on to us to the very end. He enables us to persevere in the faith. He is the good shepherd who said in John 10:28: I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a beautiful promise. He prayed on the night of his betrayal. Just before he went to the cross to make that great substitutionary sacrifice. In John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them. Keep them in your name. You can look to the doxology of Jude, verse 24. Now to him, to Jesus Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that we are not left on our loan to stumble through this life and try to keep ourselves. It is Jesus Christ Himself that protects us and guards us and keeps us. And He asked the Father and we know the Father answers the Son. In John seventeen fifteen, He does not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. We know we're kept from the evil one. This verse we're in tells us that. And the evil one does not touch him. Now I want to warn you there. Do not become too bold. Don't become too confident in that promise that the evil one does not touch him. 1 Corinthians 10.12 warns. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We do not stand on our own. Humility. Reliance on Christ. Those are marks of a believer and we are absolutely not promised to skate through this life without affliction and trials and temptations. That's easy, actually, to read this verse and get a little too confident because of the way that we use modernly the word touch. Right? We mean some light contact, like would you go touch him on the arm and get his attention? Right? That's kind of how we use touch. But the only other time this word is used by the Apostle John is back in John twenty seventeen, where he's talking to Mary, and he says, do not cling to me. It, it conveys a bit more than what we use it for. It's not a light touch, it's grasping, it's gripping, it's having a complete hold of, not being able to let go. So if you read this verse and you get excited, and you think that the devil cannot tempt you, or the devil cannot try to make your life miserable as a follower of Christ, that's not what it means. That's not what it promises. Satan stands opposed to God, he hates his followers, and he will do whatever he's permitted to do, to tempt you, and distract you, and harm you, but that the promise is there, that the Son of God will not allow you to come under the rule, or under the dominion, or under the control of the evil one. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, "...He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son." in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is a present reality, right? It's not affirming kind of these silly types of sayings like, let go and let God. It's not telling us that we have nothing to do. What it's telling us is we know that we're saved. We know that it's Christ who saves us. It is Christ who keeps us. But the Bible also tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 And you see this call to action. Listen to the exhortation in Colossians 3, 1 through 6. If then you have been raised with Christ, so if you are a believer, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Where might you find those things? I don't know. Uh, Oh, maybe your Bible, the Word of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now here's the call to action. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Not the love of God. The wrath of God is coming because of these things. As a believer, you've got to hold on to the promise that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are protected. You are kept from the domain of Satan. But as a follower of Christ... You've got to desire to obey Him, to please Him, to make yourself holy, for He is holy as He calls us to do. John has encouraged us earlier in this letter to purify ourselves so that we might stand with confidence in the day of judgment. When He comes to judge us, He is telling us we must be active in our love of Christ. We must be active in our worship. It is not passive. That is why we are called together. We are told, do not forsake the gathering of saints. We value Christ more than our own lives because we have the privilege to come and worship Him together. We must be active in our worship, active in our love for one another, and active in our obedience to Christ's commands. And of course, active in our repentance when we fail. Because we will. The knowledge, the confidence that we have in the Christian faith is reassured when we just accept the testimony of Scripture, what God has spoken. But our salvation is His work. And it is His promise to complete His work. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, at the day of judgment. That is a beautiful statement. The, the very origin of our faith, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in us, is the work of the same God who promises to keep us to the very end. Who made the great sacrifice for us. And that leads to the second thing we can know with certainty. In verse 19, 1 John 5:19. We know that we are from God. We know that we're from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Hopefully you see it there again. The use of the positive and the negative. Uh, to put to rest... Any kind of false assurances and false hopes and kind of the, I can affirm this, but not that, right? So what I mean by this is John had stopped with that first part. We know, we, remember, he's writing to believers. So We believers know that we are from God. If that was all it said, you would see nominal Christians, those, are those who claim the badging, but uh, not much else, they would say, yes, of course we know that. All people are children of God. Now, if you haven't seen that or heard that, then you're, just not, you're not reading the pop psychology Christianity out there, but that's all over the place. All Christians, all people are children of God. This is very similar to professions of faith you see in interviews with kind of the, the, the really pop culture mega church pastor types, the seeker-friendly types, they will say, and you can see this, they're pressed into it, they, can say, they will say that they believe that salvation comes through Jesus. Is that enough to convince the world? Salvation comes through Jesus. They stop there. What you will see when they get pressed, and it's fascinating to watch, they can't take the heat for proclaiming that salvation through Jesus Christ is exclusive. It only comes Through Jesus. They actually cannot stand the fact that they will not be invited again the minute that they start calling the lost to repentance and pointing out sin and saying, There is only one way. You must take the narrow road. Many take the wide road but you must take the narrow road. Jesus said this, and listen to how he does the same thing John is doing here with the positive and a negative. It's a verse you all know well, John 14, 6. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. If that was all Jesus said, you would have all kinds of people say, that's great. Sounds like kind of one of these wise proverb-like sayings, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But he adds the negative that you must affirm as well. No one, not one single person, No one comes to the Father except through me. It is the negative. It is that no one part that makes people really, really uncomfortable if they're trying to cuddle up to the world. So you can state what you believe, but you need to be able to state what you do not believe. And John is a master of that, but many struggle to accept this. He starts with that positive. We know that we're from God. We know that we are from God. So I'd ask you, do you know? Do you actually know? Or do you think? Or do you feel like you're of God? Do you know? How do you know? Can you sit with an open Bible and show me? Can we walk through the promises that you are holding on to? Do you know? We know that we are from God. The answer is pretty easy. It can be hard for some, and i say it's hard for any of us who have wayward people in our families, as we desperately want them to be saved. We want all people to come to repentance and faith in Christ. But you will know, first off, when you submit yourself to God and to His Word, every word of which is truth, god spoken, you will know mostly when you come to your end. When you realize that indeed you are a sinner against a holy God, and there is actually nothing that you can offer to save yourself, The only thing that you deserve is eternal punishment. can't offer your life. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of life comes through Christ. By the work of God, you can know. You come to your end, but you know that great saying, but God. But God, but God did what needed to be done to save you. He can save you. He does save people, He will save you, but you must believe in the Lord Jesus. You must believe in the Christ, in the Son of God, and submit your life to Him. And then you will know when you read the letter of 1 John. He wrote it so that you would know. You will know when you apply and find satisfactory results to His three tests. Not perfect results, but satisfactory results. You'll see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 20 onward growing in you, you see the righteousness, obedience, the love showing forth in your life, the right doctrine, you find these tests ultimately satisfying in the one who has been born again. That is what John keeps telling us, the one who is born of God, who the Holy Spirit works in them. And the assurance ultimately comes from him, from the Holy Spirit himself who's indwelling you, you can know that you are of God. Now you know, as I said, first and foremost, when you repent of sin and you believe in Jesus, John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the same Holy Spirit who did that work in you, he will testify. He will give you that assurance. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, as a child of God, you're in the world. You have to be. You're not of the world. You're of God. But you must be beholden to God and His Word in all things, in all of life, without exception. That's the one difficult part people have in our modern culture. There are professing Christians who would be more easily identified with a political party than with their allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. That is a mistake. Your pledge of allegiance is ultimately to Jesus Christ. Your whole life belongs to Him. And if you belong to Christ, you realize that you are only sojourning, right? You're only visiting. You're only traveling through. You're no longer really a citizen of the world in that sense, Philippians 3.20 tells us, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we're part of the world, but our hope lies elsewhere, and our allegiance lies elsewhere. 1 Peter 2.9 says this of God's children, But you are a chosen race. There are only two races, two types of people. There are the saved, the children of God, and there are the children of wrath. That's it. Two races. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians should look different than the world. They must look different than the world. It should be obvious to the world who we are. We're called out. We're holy. We are showing the light of God to the world. And we engage the world to bring the gospel to it, right? 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And to be an ambassador, you have to be there. Right? You can't be an ambassador to France and live in Elgin. It doesn't, doesn't work. You cannot be Christ's ambassador to the world and keep yourself out of the world. No, you go, for and make disciples. You have to represent him in spirit and truth to the world in which we live. But that world is a difficult place. Because we read in our verse, the negative, that world lies in the power of the evil one. The world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, many who say they're Christians in practice really deny the truth of that statement. Because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to recognize sin. You see that. We saw it in our example. You'd see it more if you read the actual statement. But something that can claim to be a Christian church and embrace and celebrate what The world celebrates in what God abhors. It's really tough to see that the world lies in the power of the evil one. It's much more comfortable to seek the approval of man, of people, even though we're heaping up eternal condemnation from God on ourselves and we see it all around us. You don't have to go look at the big cities, it's in our own communities. Whether you like it or not, this is what it looks like to be in a world that's under the control of the evil one. You are bombarded constantly, constantly with the world's arguments for what is right and what is wrong, for what is good and what is bad, for what is sane and what is insane. And those definitions change over time with cultural movements. No matter what you watch, no matter what you listen to, no matter which apps you use, even the advertisements that you see And everything else together, it just bombards you with suggestions that are designed to either persuade you or desensitize you to the truth of God's word. I want to point to one example of this, because you see it so often now in Christian media. Just think of how benign, how petty and small the debate about pronouns and gender seem to so many. They claim to stand for God's truth, but it seems like no Big deal, and it actually seems more loving. You'll see some argue. Because the world tells you to, depending on what the person wants, refer to a man as a she and a woman as a he. But this you must not do. You must not do this if you follow Christ. A Christian cannot participate in lies. We're told this over and over again. God hates liars and those who participate in lies. It's not a small matter, but it seems like one because we're so bombarded with it. This is not only a lie, it's an insane lie. Right? No sane person can see it that way. It denies God. It denies who God is. God reveals himself in the very first line of Scripture as the Creator. If you couldn't get past the first verse of the Bible, and you at least read that one. You would at least have the revelation from God that he is the creator. So is it any surprise to you that the evil one who controls the world would shift the attack to the very essence of God himself, demanding that you deny God's sovereignty in creation, instead giving that sovereignty to human beings, that control to us, and celebrate our rebellion against him? That's just one example of many. and The point is really how you respond to everything coming at you from the world needs to be driven by the word of God. How you respond to what you're exposed to is really going to be dependent on whether you accept the truth in this verse that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The lie of the world is that it's all about self-reliance. You don't need this external input from God. Human institutions can provide what you need. You should pursue your passions. You should follow your heart. We know the heart is deceitfully wicked. But you should follow yours. Yours is probably okay, says the world. You should seek instant gratification at all times. It is actually, the truth is, that a self-centered, pride-filled existence that looks out for yourself above others and maximizes your enjoyment in life, that's the happy life. Just trust the evil one. That's his promise. That is opposed to what God designed. We're designed for worship. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. But we must be driven by exceeding humility. If you know God and you know yourself, you should be the most humble person walking around. Have you ever paused and asked yourself, why did God save you? Why did He save you? And not somebody else. It certainly was not anything in any of us. Why did he save you? And if you reflect on that, that should drive you to humility, to obedience, to worship. Because self-reliance, being your own God, that's the devil's temptation in Genesis 3. Christ says that apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. John fifteen five. The Christian and the non-Christian then should be very easy to tell apart. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. You're either saved and belong to God as his child, or you are lost and under the dominion of Satan and headed to hell. Those are your two options. There's no third way. And God has laid those out. In John 15, 18 and 19, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Why don't people apply that? They don't. Churches are consistently trying to figure out how to get the world really happy with them. Individuals do the same. If you were of the world, and by the way, this is a dichotomy. You're saved or you're of the world in these verses. If you were of the world, unsaved, unregenerate, headed for punishment, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you, Out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Now, people don't love those verses. I get it. Yet you will find that sentiment said many times in many ways throughout the New Testament. What it's really doing is laying out the problem for us. It's the problem for us as individuals often, it's the problem for churches for sure. It's that they want to blur the lines between God and the world. Always looking for that third way. To keep a foot in both camps. There must be an easier way to be a Christian. But that's not Christianity. Who do we follow? We follow a Savior who went to the cross for us and who commanded His followers, deny self, take up your cross and follow me. The reward is eternal. The world may be in the grip of the one who hates God, but we stand apart from that. The one who believes in Jesus is saved and is of God. We get warnings all the time. It's not easy. We have to actually be active. 1 Peter 5, 8-10 Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Well, what do you do? Let go and let God? Cower? No. Resist Him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. You want affirmation you should only want it in one place. From Jesus Christ. You should only want that affirmation that comes in that, that, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. You'll get one of those two. I know which one I want. The devil's active. We'll close here. The devil cannot gain control over us. And that we need to be confident in. Because we are protected, we're kept by Jesus, we know this. It was Jesus who, Galatians 1.4, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So what do you know? What do you know from this letter that John wrote to the churches? Well, you know that if you know Jesus and he knows you, that you are saved. You are a child of God now, and you are a child of God for all eternity. You know that your prayers are answered. You know that he works all things for good. And that that good is your conformity to the image of Christ, your sanctification. And that good may be really painful to you at different times. Not good how we would define it always in the world. You know that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful. He's just, perfectly just, to forgive you and to cleanse you from all But you cannot know anything until you know Jesus Christ. You cannot know anything until you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must know what He has revealed. That it was foretold in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New when God sent the Eternal Son to take on a human nature and live as the man, Jesus, of Nazareth. Truly God and truly man filled without measure by the Holy Spirit, that He was sinless. He lived in perfect accord with the will of God. But He went to the cross, and He who knew no sin became sin for us, for those who will repent and believe in Him. And after His death, after He suffered the wrath of God in our place, He rose from the grave, and He ascended to the Father's right hand, where He intercedes for us. You must know Him. And you must repent. You must turn away from sin. That is what that means. Turn away from sin and turn toward God. That is when you receive life. And you follow Him. And that life comes by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We live in a world that says you cannot know. You need to make it up as you go along. You cannot know but God who created the world and everything in it. The very God who says he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. The God who reconciled a people to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. That God, the only God, has spoken and he says you can know with a hundred percent certainty. You can know that you are his. His. And you can know that through his son, Jesus Christ. I will tell you if you don't know, you have a pastor who sits in that office all week long, waiting for you to come and either debate or ask. If you don't know, this is the most important thing you must know. Your eternity depends on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can know. God, what a powerful statement you have given us in your word. You've not left us to wrestle about with it. You've not left it ambiguous. You've revealed yourself and your mighty works throughout time. And God, we are thankful that you've chosen our time and place to be now. So that we can look backward with the wonderful person and work of Jesus Christ and the work that he did to save us, just as those waited anxiously looking forward in the days of old. Lord, help us know. Father, convict us. By the work of your Spirit that convicts of sin and drives us to repentance, please do that work in each one of our hearts. Father, we need to know Father, when we doubt, we pray like the man with the possessed child. Help our unbelief. We need that work, Lord. We need it because we face a world that is under the power of the evil one for a time. But we know who the great victor is. Lord, we place all of our trust in Jesus Christ who defeated death and defeated Satan on that cross. Lord, we are privileged to know Him through Your Word. God, give us a hunger for Your Word. Please illuminate Your Word to us by the work of Your Spirit that we might understand and apply it to us. Lord, help us stand firm and fast against all of the pressures that come to us in the world. Lord, we pray for the lost. Guard them, God, and keep them and bring them back. Or bring them to you in the first place. Use us to do that. Use us to call men and women to repentance and faith. Let them experience the joy of knowing Christ. To be washed and cleansed from unrighteousness. To experience life and life abundantly that Christ promised. God help us to be the light in the world. The city on a hill that cannot be shaken and is visible to all.